Today's episode of the Watson Weekly Podcast is sponsored by Commerce Tools. The world of commerce is fast-paced and constantly changing. Commerce Tools, the global leader in commerce and creator of the powerfully composable mock architecture, enables commerce leaders to turn possibilities into reality. Commerce Tools helps businesses go from underperforming to overachieving, and from keeping up to setting the pace, all at a lower total cost. Go to commercetools.com to learn how to get started. It's July 10th, 2023, and this is the Watson Weekly, your essential e-commerce digest. For today's episode, we have something very special for our 100th episode, an interview with e-commerce industry experts and fellow Watsonians, Victor Castro and Hendrik Lobscher. In this episode, we talk about some of the most important things going on in e-commerce from an investor point of view, as well as digging into both Amazon and Shopify. That's right, friends. We started this podcast about two years ago today, and we're still going strong. Thanks so much again for your support. All right, everyone. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Watson Weekly. This is a milestone podcast with two very good friends of mine that we have here on the call. One is Hendrik Lobscher. Hendrik has been in e-commerce for over 15 years with focus in particular on marketplaces and cross-border. He offers a lot of boutique consulting services to brands of all sizes, works with startups, particularly in fast-growing sectors like live stream shopping, consumer to manufacturer, you know, meaning like some of the biggest and most innovative marketplaces and more. Victor, I'm, and, and it's interesting, Vic, both Victor and Hendrik I met over 10 years ago now, which gives you some idea how old we are in e-commerce. Victor has been with a number of brands, including, and, and I, I like to say that Victor always likes to choose the most difficult categories in e-commerce. Otherwise, like how could you go from selling like teddy bears to wine to what, what we're all... Give us your intro, Victor. <laughs> to menopausal supplements, to now infant formula, writing time for a national shortage. Not by choice. I always try to find easy jobs. And I think, <laughs> I, I, or rather, I always think they're easy when I take them. So maybe it goes to be being naive about different verticals. Uh, but I've I've enjoyed my time dealing with different challenges across different brands. But yeah, it, uh, I think I'll be bored otherwise, right? Right. And look, e- e-commerce, there's no easy businesses. I thought that's what the, e, the E stood for. Right. The E in e-commerce is easy. I don't know. I don't even know what it stands for anymore. So we have a number of topics that we're going to talk about today. And we're kind of go, kind of hop skip through a, a few different things. One is kind of fundraising, venture capital economy. Next is we'll talk about Amazon. What's going on with them right now, one year after, after Andy Jassy has taken over? What's happening there? And then we'll kind of, we'll probably end up on Shopify and then kind of more retail more broadly. Shopify is always an interesting topic just because they're used by so many people and everyone has a lot of different opinions on them. But I um, wanted to take a, a quick moment to talk about just the Watson Weekly in general. I know both of you guys have been contributors for ideas for the podcast over the time, giving me feedback as we change formats of it 
different time. Why don't you tell me a little bit about, first of all, do you even listen to it? Like, by the way, you're supposed to lie. Second, what makes it different from other podcasts from your point of view? So Rick, um, I'll take the first stab at it. So I do listen to this and no, I'm not lying. Uh, Two, I I primarily listen to Rick's stories and opinions um, while I walk my dog in in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, I find it therapeutic um, that Rick's voice tells me all about the most interesting news that's relevant for me. And I think the reason it's, it's different than any of the other podcasts is that in general, the e-commerce podcasts that I've been on or the ones that I listen to are long and you, you kind of sometimes get lost in some rabbit hole that the presenters are on. Whereas with yours, um, the, the Watson Weekly, especially, you know, as everybody wants to be a Watsonian, it's just a case of it's short, it's sharp. Um, and it's to the point. And then it's also, it's it's fair. I know some companies might disagree with that comment that I just made, but I find your coverage and your stories to be really fair in the sense that you provide all sides of the story so that there's decent quality content available for people to listen. Because let's be honest, there's too much information. And as an e-commerce exec, you need to know exactly what's going on because it could it can impact your business, especially like somebody like Victor, who is always looking for like the, the advantage. Yeah, uh, I listen to it not uh, as consistently, maybe um, only because I don't listen to podcasts all that often. So I, I binge, let's say. Uh, but I I like that it's I like that it's concise. Uh, it doesn't drone on, and, and two. I like that you don't tell us what to think, right? So a fairly balanced presentation of the facts and then sort of gets a nice opportunity to, to think through. I mean, I I, I like it um, a lot. Like I tell you all the time, I really appreciate your LinkedIn posts and like the most thought-provoking mm-hmm. posts I find. And this is, a, this is a little bit of the same in a different format in a way that, you know, you can, right. you can expand a little more than it's hard sometimes in written form to really present it so i that's i like the conciseness i mean i think that you, you give me the facts i really appreciate especially when you're doing some of your earning reports i don't have time mm-hmm. uh and like to me that's uh something that you're able to pull that key two three four points out of the earning report just i do find that they tie into macro stuff very well right like you can see it yeah. in the earnings report and you're like <laughs> Yeah, they're they're basically living what is coming to the rest of us. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. a nice it's a nice window into like things to keep an eye on. Right? Like example of that is like you've been doing the earnings reports for like the big carriers for a while, and we have been seeing the changes right in the earnings report, and it's landing into what you see in other places of the industry. Right? This is the this is where Shopify now was three quarters, four quarters behind, and then getting rid of the warehouses for the same reasons, really, right? And I think right. it's you see the consolidation in the 3PL market space. So I think that when you're doing those reviews, you're giving us a little bit of a window of what's coming farther than market, right? If you're not an enterprise at the level of of a carrier, um, to me, it's valuable. I'm like, I feel like I'm staying a couple of quarters ahead of what other people are paying attention to. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think think that's good. I mean, obviously LinkedIn only gives you so much to write about and... It's it's hard to get everything on LinkedIn because it's so noisy. I mean, even even if you want to follow someone, it's it's quite difficult to follow someone. And so, if you want to hear things, and I can give it better treatment on the podcast, wanted to jump into venture capital. And 
I, I'm just going to go straight for the jugular here. AI, do any VCs know what the hell they're doing here? And how is this not going to be a repeat of crypto and blockchain and Amazon aggregators times 10 because everyone's piling into the same idea? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say that I, listen, maybe I'm not paying attention. I think that, that the market dynamic has changed. So yes, conceptually is the same, but they're not falling for the same thing again, right? There's a lot of people on the sidelines. So it's not as many. It's not Web3 crypto where everybody got in and it, it failed. Also, the grift is not as bad, right? So <laughs> Web3 crypto grift was crazy. The grift on the AI is a little more transparent. Now, I'll tell you, like, I think that Web3 and crypto sort of had a little bit of like that technical quote-unquote difficulty that was sort of shielding people. And so the, it, it, it was a little more sort of um, difficult for people to grasp. But I think AI is a little more accessible, right? So everybody's playing with it. Everybody can use the concept. Like, I, I don't know. I think that it's not as bad. I do think that money's not cheap anymore. And so they're not treating it like that. And they're not just throwing it around okay. as much. So having spent, I'd say, a fair fair part of the month of June um, on AI, um, I think one, let's get the, the elephant out the room. And the elephant out the room is that, that AI is not going to come into your front door and replace you as, as a human. I think that's really important because certain very well-known investors um, has written that, you know, there are different forms of, you know, AI people that don't like it. I don't have a horse in the race. But I'll tell you, I think what's, for me, that's what's really important is, and I think a story that I think has gone underreported by the, 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 the sector, the tech sector, is what happened at Reddit. And Reddit essentially said that if you are building apps or businesses from our APIs, we actually want you to pay for it. I believe that with AI, the challenge isn't about the technology. I think the technology will basically be built by everybody and anybody because it will become uh, democratized. I think it's going to be access to basically proprietary data sets that will give you specific information for specific sectors. And um, while we just did this, I just saw Databricks just spent like a half a fortune on a, a, a business for this specific reason. So let's also be honest, Eric, and I think it's a it's a really important topic that Victor has kind of just mentioned, but I think it's also worth mentioning again, is that there is grifting, without a doubt, but I think the various differences between this market for AI, which is frothy, let's just say, is that there is actually things being done in front of our eyes where you just like think, wow. Yes, everybody finds that GPT hell of annoying. It's on every... LinkedIn feed and on every blog post, but it's it's moved us forward one step in automation. Um, and then lastly, let's just, just, just realize once again that humans will be needed to make decisions because there is only so much data that can be used currently for training of these models. So what I'm hearing out of this is there's obviously some value. A lot of improvements are going to be made it's not going to replace humans. And there's going to be a huge value in these specialized data sets. The question is like, will the value of those specialized data sets only accrue to the big networks like Google, Meta, Apple, 
Or is there a chance for smaller providers to have a role in an area where the tools are owned by all these big providers because, look, you're, you're going to have to train your data sets on Microsoft's cloud or Google's cloud or, or Amazon's cloud. There are only going to be so many places, maybe, maybe Snowflake, potentially. But is there, there's not going to be a fifth, sixth, seventh provider here. So is the opportunity, is the app store really kind of more like a data-based app store where you can plug in proprietary data sets that you now have to license from these various providers? Rick, what you've just asked is, I think, exactly what has kind of gotten lost in the details. And that in that, that fellow that sits in Silicon Valley called Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg has realized very quickly that, and I'm not being derogatory, I, I think it's actually a genius move what he's done. He's realized that there's either one of two ways that this can go. It either will stay open sourced and it'll be a, become a licensing nightmare, which will have those awful people coming after startups because they don't own this IPO. Or what he's trying to do with Meta and saying, you know what, we are going to roll this out, make it available for everybody. We just want to generate money based on the usage of the, the models in whatever way. I think it does have a significant advantage for the larger businesses, the ones that you mentioned, the Apples, the Amazons. It's simple in the sense that you need development and talent and you need access to the right data sets. And sadly, that's inside the large, large companies who have all of these glorious things in, in abundance. What do you what do you think, Victor? Like, where's the money to be made? Where's the opportunity for independent software developers? I'm looking at like like the Shopify. Like, where's the Shopify App Store opportunity in this market? I think the opportunity here is in building unique niche data sets that nobody can replicate, right? And so, like, what well, the opportunity is to build the tool that attracts the audience that will give you that data. So, you know, there's a value exchange that you have to do, right? Like, look at the news, right? Reddit, crap tons of data, lots and lots of data for all kinds of communities. And that is the data that will, you know, that is the personally, and you've heard me say before, I think are terrible decisions happening at the management side of Reddit. But the driver is correct. The driver is, we have all this invaluable niche data that can train and is being used for free by others to train AI models. I mean, listen. Right. They have to charge for it at some point. Right. But, you know, I think that the thing that what it shows is their lack of, not even vision, because it's not about like actually having visibility into the future. But I think that honestly, they just didn't really build the tooling and systems to be able to do this properly. Right. They should have spent the last five years building a, a improved tooling internally for man- for for uh, community management and then two the right tooling for managing accessibility to this to this API basically they're, they're, basically what they're saying to me is we're gonna take, kick everybody out because we have no way to control access to our API in a, in a meaningful way that we can monetize logically and sensibly right. so instead we're gonna just kick everybody out because we're gonna charge everybody a fee for the API access so that, that you know it goes to show you that management needs to look at themselves for, for that failure. And if it, I see that if they continue to do what they're doing, they will they will actually lose the source of that data. Think about how many communities are there with free content, but more importantly, they're moderated for free. 
How much money does mm-hmm. it cost in Facebook? How much money does it cost Elon? Look what Elon did. How much money does it take to moderate communities of this size? And he's getting, Reddit is getting it for free. And, and that is what actually feeds the model because all of a sudden, if those communities go unmoderated or the moderators go away and they stop using the tools they use to moderate the content and the quality of the content, then the quality of data goes down. And if that quality of data goes down, it's, valuable, it's a lot less valuable to train an AI model. So I, I think they're missing the forest for the trees here. But to me, yeah. the opportunity is that. The opportunity is, can you build out a tool, an app, a game that exchanges entertainment, information, content mm-hmm. for data on the other side that is very dedicated to a specific topic or a specific niche? And you, you can then sell that as a training engine for an AI model to use elsewhere. You know, and I think that in terms of e-com, right? I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that I, I think that it will be interesting space for for some of the the people who who have been used to monetizing content and blogs, and a lot of it was typically affiliate links. And I actually think mm-hmm. that there is an opportunity for them to monetize behavioral mm-hmm. data through mm-hmm. AI models rather than having to leverage clicks to conversions and getting a mm-hmm. cut. Where you know, if you're a large, large mm, Blog, like take something like the wire cutter, right? New York Times right. wire cutter, great content. They see a lot of behavior. They see they a see lot a of lot. behavior data by vertical. That stuff is stuff they can leverage the data of the behavior as opposed to just trying to get the money from the clicks. So, right. No, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So, a- AI is obviously going to be a huge trend, I think, in venture capital. From a valuation point of view, it, obviously, it seems like we're coming back to earth. I mean, I remember advising companies two years ago. If you were valuing a direct-to-consumer business, middle of the road, three times revenue. It was a middle-of-the-road valuation with some of these direct-to-consumer, with, high, with much higher upside for the crazy ones, right? But I'm, t- I'm talking like not the crazy ones, even. And then SaaS businesses, you know, between 8 and 12 times ARR or annual recurring revenues, somewhere in that range. Now in 2023, what do we have? We have, we have no IPOs. We're just starting to have a couple of IPOs appear for later this year. And then we also have no, especially in the past three, six months, we have no acquisitions. So even the private markets aren't picking off a lot of these companies. So I've seen, I think, ARR multiples that used to be, that I would think, even for not fast-growing companies that I thought would be like six times ARR, now are in the 1.5 times ARR range. So things are... I don't know. Consistently, I'm finding things like 25% of what they used to be in the good times. And maybe that's a good thing or not. I, what are you seeing out there, Victor? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. On the DTC side, yes, valuations were very, very high. I mean, people were throwing a lot of money early just on growth rates and never mind even revenue numbers, right? It was just like, oh, you're raising a, you're growing at 500%. Here's a boatload of money. Right. But I, I, I think that it is it is interesting because one of the things that listen, I'm a DTC guy. I I do believe in the thesis of you know being able to scale fast and grow and then but you do have to have those unit economics in place, right? And and there was a lot of ignoring the unit economics and thinking that you could potentially eventually lower your cost enough. But the thing that people miss, and I think that really the big libel went off with the iOS change, the ballooning. And the, the problems that Facebook had where everybody was relying on these low CACs was that this was always true, but people forgot because it had been so sort of... Um, so cheap. Cons- well, it had all, not just cheap, but consistent, right? And so 
what happens is that when you're looking at a DTC business early on, the, the fixed cost is fairly relatively low. Right? You invest one time in R&D, you, you, you get supply chain from outside, whatever it is. And your variable cost is the cost of acquisition, the marketing, right? And the fulfillment. And people consider like the stable cost of acquisition cost you were getting as, as sort of like, they almost thought it was fixed. Put a bunch of money behind it. And then when the reality came that those, those costs actually scale as you scale and they get worse, the math on the original thesis fell apart. And I think that after that realization, when they're looking at businesses now, I think there's a real challenge because they're like, okay, you're growing at a good clip, but for you to continue that growth, you're going to have to continue to increase your CAC at 10, 15, 20%. And if your unit economics are not getting any better, there's no real economic scale. And so I think that you'll see that early stage is actually in good shape. So what I'm seeing is pre-seed, seed, it actually is just as competitive in terms of like fundraising. Everybody wants to get in, no problem. I think so this, it's is a, this is news plus. for all you startups out here that don't let the lack of capital or the cost of capital, everything that's happening. A lot of this happening is like Series C, D, even B. Anyone who's trying to exit. Yeah, B plus, right? B, anybody, that, anybody that maybe took a low, a smaller B and is trying to do a B plus, I think is finding that time challenging. Or, or honestly, they just don't have a good business. I think that the majority of them are finding themselves at B and then trying to sell a B plus or a C under the same economics they had at A and C that don't are not getting the support anymore because they don't see the what's the exit, right? People were racing at racing at five X and revenues. And now nobody sees the end of that tunnel. There's nobody else holding a bag paying nine X in two years. Yeah. Um, what have you seen, Hendrik? I know you talk to a lot of startup founders as well. So one, I, I think, I believe the good investors, the guys who write few, the, the guys and the girls, let me just, before I get into trouble, <laughs> some of them stopped writing checks in the chaos. I remember seeing during the, the COVID stories, I remember seeing diligence being done in like 24 hours. So we were all, always going to have a reckoning. I think Victor's point about Pre-seed, seed, series A, I, I totally agree with him. I, I see the same. I see the trouble starting at like series C where you don't have product market fit and you also are unable to scale because you either don't have enough product in the market or you are not creating enough product to get consumers to be buying from you, whether it's whatever the replenishment cycle is for a specific category. Two, I think the one thing that neither of you have mentioned is that there's this thing called SoftBank. SoftBank stopped writing insane checks. And those insane checks essentially were, were fueling the, the Series B, C, D ranges where you, it doesn't make sense. We've seen them exiting and closing down businesses and you know, we saw Master Sun early in the week say that, you know, he's going back into it all aggressively. I keep an eye on a group of 15 venture funds. Uh, some of them are on Sandy Road. Some of them are based in New York. And a lot of them are still writing checks for startups. But it's, it's no longer five or six tech, uh, tech crunch articles a, a month or a week. It's now one or two. 
And there's a lot more diligence being done in terms of the team, in terms of the opportunity, um, but also making sure that there's an actual 10x opportunity. Yeah. So more more diligence on the business model, more diligence on the team, which had kind of stopped. Yeah, there's less formal, right? There used to be formal from, from people is like, oh, you already have two term sheets? Doesn't matter. I just have I to gotta get in. Sheet. That's right. And they didn't even know who the founder was, right? It's like, oh, those two are already in. Here is a similar number that's slightly better terms shipping, right? And after they got it, they're like, what did we buy? Okay, great. And yeah, I think that that has stopped. But I'll tell you on the business side, one thing that I will tell you, just I'm hearing a lot and seeing it, is the due diligence on the business side, okay? And and I, <laughs> is it is incredibly strong the level of questions that people are, are are asking tells me that it was not it was not an accident or not, I don't know phrase that actually that it was it was it was not that they were making mistakes before they were they were purposefully not asking the questions right it's not like they didn't understand the business because <laughs> it was like I, I, people were not were asking throwing hey, money down a hole that they thought would eventually produce money on the other end. They they actually know all the metrics and all the levers that run a DTC business successfully, but I I, I had not heard them ask those questions at any at any at any funding level until in the last like six nine months or maybe nine to twelve months now. Before it was like, what's your GMV? How many customers do you have? What's your growth rate? Here's the money. Now it's like, what is your CAC today? What is your CAC going to be in the next two quarters? Why is it going to be lower? How is that going to change your AOV and your LTV? And they're doing the math on like payback on your CAC. And they're like, they, those are great questions. And I'm happy to answer <laughs> them, right? Those are amazing. But they, they weren't asking those questions nine months ago. I think the other thing that I'm also seeing, Rick, which is important is that the real world, you know, retail has retail valuations and, and funding sizing and, and, you know, those connections are being made. We're not talking that we're creating new companies in new sectors and, you know, the world is a great place. We're actually talking what's really happening right now, which for me is a great thing to see. So venture capital, it's, it's more challenging to raise money. Mm-hmm. And... However, investors are still taking bets on early stage companies that aren't supposed like you aren't supposed to have a lot of traction pre-seed. And that's okay. As long as you have a story and as long as you have a great team and you show some numbers about what you're doing and why you think you have a plausible case to make money, you could still raise seed right now. But without without even yeah. some idea Personally, I don't think you can raise a seed round with at least some idea of your unit economics and at least some minor proof, at least, that why you think it's going to play out this way. I mean, 100%. That's it. I think that there, there's, there's plenty, actually, I think, of, of people looking to fund earlier stage because they don't have those later stages to allocate to. I mean, I think that you're, I, I've been hearing, anecdotally, but I've been hearing of, you know, uh, VC funds returning funds to their LPs, honestly, and I think the play yep. is because one, they don't have a place to allocate them, but B, it makes the returns look better, right? And and they have penalties yep. for for those, and so there, there is a lot of there is money sitting out. But if you have on the DTC side, if you have a good good 
unit economics, and you have at least some proof of your cost of acquisition to some extent. And the reason is that most marketing channels on the DTC side are scalable, right? The mark, the channels are scalable. So all, what you really have to do is prove out that, that you're acquiring, to Kendrick's point, you know, go through some acquisition, prove out your acquisition costs, and then two, prove out your cohort analysis, that they have the right LTV to justify your CACs. And I think you can go with that and do raise some cash. I mean, it's not going to be the crazy amounts that people were raising before, but people were taking everything. You know, they were, they were taking sort of like huge runways. And yeah, you're not going to get a 24-month runway anymore. Nobody's giving you that at seed, right? But can you get enough to scale from year one to year two, go from, say, top to $5 million in revenue to go into like the 20s? Sure, that's doable. Yeah. No, it makes sense. So let me move on from v- VC and go into Amazon because I think Amazon is is at an interesting point in its history. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Like Jeff Bezos used to worry about day two. Are, are we becoming an innovative company? The day two horse has left the, left the barn five years ago, in my opinion. We, we are not dealing with the Amazon that we all knew 10 years ago where the consumer is first and we're willing to lose money at all costs, provide that magic experience. We're not willing to put ads in front of the consumer. All of that stuff is just gone. We're really at the point where Jeff is on his yacht. He finally got it out of the port. He's enjoyed, he's living life. The, the, the worse Jassy does, the smarter he looks. Amazon obviously overinvested in fulfillment infrastructure at the peak of the pandemic, it was almost forced to. And it's, it's you know, pulling back like FedEx and UPS, really all the carriers are doing the same thing. Amazon is really no different per se than any other carrier or different than a Shopify that overbuilt its development infrastructure. Everyone built on the same, everyone made the same mistake over and over, right? So let's start with like the fundamental of Amazon, that flywheel. More sellers, more brands, more money, has the fundamentals of Amazon's flywheel changed from you guys' perspective? I don't think the concept, the, I don't think so. I think that the, it was never the more sellers. I think, that was a, I think that was a misconception. It was never about the number of sellers. It was about the quality and quantity of product. And I think that they missed one of those cues, right? To me, that, that is the biggest gap. I think that, you know, unfortunately, I don't know how they do it. They, they have to figure a way to, to reduce the sellers to do quantity over, you know, quality over quantity. That will bring the flywheel back. So I think right now they're seeing a lot of leakage in the areas where they were making their bread and butter was like, you know, a certain dollar amount items. It was easy, fast. You would go to Amazon, pick it up two days at home. And they, I think they dropped the ball on the quality control part of their sellers. And so you have a lot of garbage, especially those price points. And the more you see people are getting, forget about the, the mistakes around the fulfillment side, just the, the quality of the product is terrible, right? It, it's, it's, it's worse than buying a straight, you know, go to, to the marketplaces that are hosted in China, right? You can go to, what is it, Alibaba, AliExpress, DHgate, and get the same quality for half the price. It takes a few more days to get to your house, but and so I think that the, that, that is one of the main things about the flywheel that Amazon is doing. And then I am really curious about, you know, at times, if you squint, you almost think that Amazon 
either purposefully or they are stumbling towards the Costco model where, where the money's in the membership. They keep adding value to Prime but for very good reasons. And I think that that is the, the right play. But the, you, when you think about all the fulfillment costs that they're going up and sort of, you know, how expensive and difficult they're going to have to keep to raising that membership cost and providing more perceived value in that membership. They're going to have to. That is really where it comes in, right? So I find it interesting. It's, it's funny that they have almost like a lot of their successful businesses have come from originally Prime coming to add value. Like Prime Video is a perfect example of that. Right? I think Prime Video is, is a good product. I mean, it's not up to the levels of other publishers. It's, good, but it's good-ish. Well, it's good enough for free when you get as free as part of your membership, right? <laughs> so for a free product, I think it's pretty good. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how they how they deal with that. I mean, I, I find they're moving to into trying to get like luxury and fashion and, and you know, beauty. Seems like it doesn't seem to me like the right fit for them. I'm curious why they're trying so hard to make it happen. But uh, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I've never been a huge, I, I use Amazon as a consumer, had been a member for a long time, but like I've never as a, as a DTC, mostly, you know, marketer and operator, I, I my 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 view of Amazon is a it's a fairly practical one. It's a it's an overcrowded, really busy shopping mall with a ton of traffic. But I'm not really interested in paying rent at that mall. But I, I will happily stand at the door with a flyer about my product <laughs> to capture the traffic. But I don't really want to pay rent for a, <laughs> for a store, right? So like I, that's how I think of Amazon um, as a as an operator of DTC business is like. Great for product introduction, great for brand awareness, but until they 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 figure something out around try, quality, trying to move off to your own properties in the long run, or yeah, yeah, and I, I think control the experiment experience more. And I think Amazon realizes that. I mean, you look at the changes they made, they're making, and you know, they, they recently what I, I never thought would actually happen is allowing advertisement to offsite properties. I, I never thought that would ever happen, and so that's a very. I think it's actually underplayed in the media. I don't think nobody's talking about this, but I, if they truly make that change between ShopPay, or I'm not ShopPay, I'm sorry, Amazon Pay. What, what is it called nowadays? What is that one? It's <laughs> not the Prime. wallet. Buy with Prime. That one. Between Buy with Prime and uh, allowing advertising off-site. We talked about it, what? How long has it been? Several months ago, one of your LinkedIn posts, right? Where as a, as a DTC operator, Buy with Prime has no value to me really unless right they help to drive traffic and if that is the gate they're opening but then that will transition the business then you know yeah i I don't i don't think they can go they open they can open that door too far no let me let let hendrick get his words in because i know he has his own take on amazon where it is today where what do they what changes do they need to be making so rick just I think it's important to note that I work with an agency in Oregon, Equity Commerce. And what we've seen over the last 12 months is that Amazon has essentially made 3P irrelevant and 1P vendors are back in vogue. And it's important. That's an important thing to note. Yes, they will tell you in the quarterly results that, you know, third-party sellers are kicking them in the nuts and everything else. But the one, the one B vendor business is important. To Victor's point, I disagree. I think the model and the flywheel has changed. 
And I think the reason why it's changed is that I think internally inside Amazon, there's a belief now that, and a realization that the retail business is going to be growing at 4% for the next decade, and that'll be okay. I do think, though, what, what Victor mentioned is, and I don't think he's aware of it, but I think the flywheel moving forward will be that advertising and AWS will become the, the accelerators of the future. And the reason why I say that is that Amazon's advertising business has grown at a rate of knots. From a technology standpoint, it's way better than anything else that's available at the moment for the, the advertiser. Yes, I said the advertiser. But what people kind of forget is that amid all the chaos that's, you know, what's called retail media networks, that's Amazon. That's nobody else. So for me, in simple terms, Amazon is the only platform that gives you end-to-end from the impression all the way to the purchase um, in terms of data. And if you think about it from an outsider standpoint, so Victor is a consumer, but inside Amazon's large data lake, he's another node which essentially has purchasing history. So I believe the fly the flywheel in the future will be we will leverage the data points that is generated inside retail to offer advertising to huge agencies which are already working with. Hmm. Um, and the movement into providing a, an NFL uh, game on Black Friday, it's always to get access to brands, advertising fees, but also an opportunity for them to collect more data, which they can then use as a way to help brands create new audiences. That is, I think, what's getting lost in this entire conversation. Andrek, I, I agree with you. I, the only thing I would say is that Amazon already has a lot of data. I don't think they have proven an ability to leverage it well. right? I don't know. Listen, my experience as a consumer... They already have, I've been a customer of Amazon for whatever, a decade. They have 10 years worth of my purchases and my browsing and my likes and not likes. Do you think that, do you think that my, do you think that my experience on Amazon is conducive to an increased share of wallets or a high AOV? No, absolutely zero. I, I don't think I have ever clicked or bought any product that's shown in the homepage of Amazon. They have the worst merchandising in e-commerce. I'm dead serious. I mean, maybe it works for other people. As for me, Victor, they have never. My point. Victor, but, you're but making my I point. I just don't think that my getting point. more data is going to fix. I mean, I agree that's the opportunity, but I don't. Right now, they could be doing that with the data sets they have, and they have improving an ability to do so. One one way I wanted to go with here is that Amazon has always been. You brought up a good point about quality earlier on, Victor. Amazon has always been. If you're in the marketplace, you have a product there. Quality is about you serving the customer. And if you don't serve the customer, you are gone. And it could be a mistake that you're gone. Your competition could have reported you or any other, but you are gone. It's true. Mm -hmm. And you, if you didn't fulfill Amazon standards, regardless of what they were, even if they were opaque, obviously they were a lot of transparent about a lot of it. But with advertising, the world is a little bit different. Amazon doesn't always care that you buy. Amazon is determining value by in the search results by oh, well, they didn't buy, but they clicked around. And the consumer got value because they were doing discovery. They learned. How does Amazon police 
the, the there was a term the other day I heard. It's like the shitification of Amazon. Uh, how does Amazon police the quality of a search results without traditional Amazon-like signals? I I think it's we're in the middle of that. I continue to believe that I think Amazon is a leader in the use of artificial intelligence. I know that's a buzzword, so I'm not going to say. Uh, uh, wait, 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 wait. is this Hendrick or is this Amazon's PR team on the line? Call, no, no, caller, no, no. caller, can you I've state your name for I've, the record? My name is Hendrik Loebscher. I'm phoning from in from a large country down south. But Rick, my point is, is that the tools that Amazon is providing advertisers and sellers have increased the access to anonymized data, and that has only happened in the last 12 months. Amazon Marketing Cloud, AMC, is a, is a behemoth product that nobody's talking about. It. Why? Because it's the Switzerland of data cleaning. You can bring your entire data stack into this and then create agent, new audiences with it. If you're a DTC business that is struggling to get traffic to it, there is an opportunity for you for you to do this. This is why Buy With Prime is getting all the bells and whistles from investment banks, but they haven't read your very nice, you know, set of, you know, your in-depth discovery of you know how the Buy With Prime experience is. My point is is that Amazon has moved past being a retailer. The retail is there for it fits a purpose. It's now going on to the next part of its journey. And the journey is going to be powered by software and advertising. All right, Hendrik wins this one. Speaking of next part of the journey, a certain Canadian founder told us a year and a half ago that vertically integrated logistics was the biggest opportunity for Shopify. Now that Deliver and Six River robots have been divested, what's the next big idea for Shopify? Oof. Well, uh, I, I have two minds on this. I have the I have the investor shareholder mindset behind that. I think that there is a, a a potentially very positive development around trying to own the customer, sort of the the increase of visibility and push for the shop app, shop pay, sort of trying to somewhat kind of get in the middle, try to become a little bit of a marketplace. There's an interesting value there from an investor like you know valuation perspective from a from a customer a merchant that uses shopify you know i find that direction to be problematic and troublesome and so from that perspective i actually think that i am interested to see how they go about their transition supposedly to enterprise and if they're going to really dedicate the resources to actually become a more enterprise friendly platform that allows the level of customization and support primarily that that have honestly I don't think they do that well supporting mid-level yeah. or you know mid-market companies. Let, let, so. let's let me ask you one question about enterprise. If M, if if Shopify is as customizable and it's API first as any other solution on the market and you have great support, what's preventing enterprises from adopting it? That's, I mean, I think that that's a great question. Well, number one, right now, it's probably they have not yet, they made the news last week on this, right? But they haven't yet opened the financial side of it, right? They're still pushing really hard to use Shopify payments. There is still, you know, if you're a subscription business, very limited in the merchant services partners you can have 
And that's a big blocker for enterprise. Enterprise will never sign up for that. So I think that they have to clear that out. Outside of that, you know, they've had a struggle. They have become too used to serving smaller organizations that require less tooling. So I think that they still lack on the tooling side. They still lack on the transparency. You know, I, I, I keep pointing this out, but you want to know if their uptime, they took that status page away a long time ago, but they haven't brought it up. I don't know that any enterprise, our enterprise technology team will be okay not knowing when their servers were up or not, right? And so I think that they, there's a cultural thing they have to overcome to really become enterprise, but no, they, they have the right, I think they have the right base. They just need to change their mindset slightly and, you know, sort of maybe leave the rebels behind a little bit because there's a, it's not a, there's not a never ending stream of rebels, let's say that. And I think that they're starting to reach that point. Uh, and maybe they need to focus on those that made it beyond rebels and actually built an army uh, and have a real business. And I think that they left that cohort a little behind uh, over time. Hendrik, I know you have a lot of thoughts on Shopify. What's next from them from your point of view? So I'm going to firstly state that I have no, uh, I work with companies that use Shopify, but I don't pay the bills. So I, I, I think I can have a bit more more clear view on this. So number one, Rick, you asked about what's their future and what's the like the immediate future. I think it's already been shown to us. It's called uh, the checkout as well as payments. They, for me, in simple terms, are going after PayPal's business in trying to create scale through payments. Um, and to that point, I think the question now becomes, if you're a commerce business, first, is it, is it easy adding payments or is if you're a payments company, is it adding the commerce elements to ensure that you have a sustainable business? Let's be very clear here. Victor dodged the question because, but I, I understand why he Whoa, dodged the question. Whoa, dodged the question. Yes. The, the question was, for me, why are enterprises not going to Shopify? I'll tell you why. It's, it's switch costs. And also, let's be bluntly honest, if Victor feels that, you know, mid-tier businesses aren't being, you know, properly solved, are you really telling me an enterprise customer that's doing a hundred and like over a billion dollars in revenue wants to be like worried about whether their business is up and, up and running? So they have lots to do i think uh, right just to just because to, i to me i think that i think that what enterprise needs from shopify is a little more like a, fee, a sense that the organization is aligned in the area of focus being that it doesn't feel that way right you have and it, i mean until recently right they're like oh, we're gonna do fulfillment who's gonna go do fulfillment with shopify right please they are you know they're doing payments they're doing payments but they do payments is a white label of stripe that's not serious, right? Who's going to do that? And so, like, that is, they're trying to do this shop, like, shop app. I think enterprise loves that. It's a distraction. They're not focused on the things that will drive revenue and success for enterprise. They need to, they do some good things, but they need to show attention to that, right? And they have been over-reliant on the app, on the app ecosystem. I know you and I disagree on this. You see it as a huge moat. I see it as a, I don't see it the same. I think that, and they're not picking winners. That's an interesting thing to do. So now they're undermining their own app ecosystem by picking winners for different pieces. So I, 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 I think there's a very different thing from a shop app, Shopify app ecosystem that is good for entrepreneurs than the one that's good for enterprise. That I 100% agree with because I think the caliber of the apps needs to be greatly improved. I think the 
caliber of the implementers in the integration needs to be greatly improved, you know, as, as well as the support provided to the merchants to provide, to find these providers to work with these people long-term because, I mean, look, the biggest challenge that Shopify is going to have in this market is that there is no way Shopify is going to let go of being the entrepreneurship company. It's not possible. And so to the extent that it's not possible, it just means that you add more doubt to the enterprise sales process. And, and I think that's the challenge that they're going to have. So with that, I'm going to wrap up the show for today. I appreciate uh, Hendrik and Victor, you guys coming on. Would definitely, it feels like we could have spent an hour on each one of these topics. Yeah. And, and, and we're just scratching the surface of a, of a lot of these topics in e-commerce. But it also gives you some idea why these interview podcasts are so long. Why, why does Joe Rogan have a three-hour podcast? Because he, he gets to all his questions or, or somebody like this. So um, anyway, the Watson Weekly, we're not going to be that. Every, every now and then we're going to have guests on and uh, we'll, we'll do it that way. So any last words, uh, Victor? Oh, thank you for having us. Congratulations. Big milestone. Keep it up. All right. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. I uh, appreciate your time. Cheers, Rick. Thanks for having us. 